a solo show today with just me talking ADHD and my experience. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 334 and I, oh, 335 already, I think, gosh, and I am just with you today, just me. When I shared that I had been through uh, getting an ADHD diagnosis, it naturally led me to let you guys know and I jumped on Insta stories one day and said, what questions do you have either for me about what I've done or uh, about ADHD generally uh, because there's a lot of confusion about what it is and who it affects and where it comes from and is it a root cause thing so much. And so a lot of people asked questions. And so I wanted to do this show to talk about everything from when I first suspected that I had ADHD through to why I got diagnosed, some of the things that that diagnosis offered me in terms of options to move forward, as well as options to look at the past and know myself better and accept myself better. I'll go into that later. Uh, Then, of course, uh, looking at some of the really crappy parts of it and how it's affected my life in retrospect and presently, and then some of the things that I'm really excited about with it uh, because it's not all bad and it's not all amazing. I think there can be a lot of toxic positivity around words like, it's your superpower. Um, In part, it can be, absolutely. But in parts, it's a real hindrance. And I think this subject, like any subject of people tackling things that other people don't have the experience of themselves needs to be treated with a lot of compassion and a lot of listening rather than deciding off the cuff what you think ADHD is uh, because uh, you heard one person say it's not real on a podcast and they sounded like an expert. Listen to the people who have it and who they are and what they're going through and and then you will start to be able to form a more accurate picture of what it is, what it encompasses and how it affects people in all sorts of different ways, good and bad. So uh, I will hook into that in a little minute. I uh, can't put on this show without our amazing sponsors. And I want to give a shout out to Metagenics, uh, who are one of our show sponsors this year. And I came across an interesting fact. I was like, how many people are using supplements right now? And analysts expect the global vitamin and mineral supplement market to grow by 6.85% by 2023 this year. So it's it's grown exponentially. Uh, people are starting to realize that our soil isn't what it was. And so we're not being deeply nourished as well as we were before uh, industrial agriculture. 
as well as a whole host of biohacking happening and people understanding that you can actually take supplements to support various genetic profiles and on and on. They have become critical, uh, the nutraceutical sector. But of course, finding good quality supplements isn't always easy. I did a show on this a couple of years ago with Kate Holm, a naturopath and nutritionist, uh, in what she's found as a, a clinician and uh, in terms of working with brands um, that actually are what they say they are on the box and are therapeutic to what you need uh, inside uh, the pill or capsule, right? Because that's a whole other kettle of fish. Anything you can buy over the counter in a pharmacy and you take what's on the back is generally regarded as safe for anyone to do any time. And so that begs the question, well, if someone really had a problem, would that be a therapeutic dose? Uh, and you want products that are safe, effective, and also give you good value and results. Uh, Metagenics tests every single ingredient in every batch of its product. They conduct, get this, over 48,000 quality control tests every single year. Uh, and this test helps ensure everything from consistency, efficacy of the Metagenic product range. And then there's the True Quality platform that lets you see the testing information for every batch. And this data is available for every product that Metagenics makes. And you can enter a lot number and see the quality testing information. So the level of transparency is huge. And then they have three independent organizations certify their production facilities each year. And in turn, that helps assure uh, the highest quality production standards. Metagenics has over 100,000 practitioner partnerships around the world. Uh, and when you are working with a practitioner and you know that they're using Metagenics, then, you know, you, you can trust that that's a good brand. And I think that's really important as we all work to, to be our best selves. So a huge thank you to Metagenics for being one of our sponsors. And of course, we have Oz Climate, our major sponsor, who, if you don't have one of their air filters or dehumidifiers yet, Aussies, uh, this is game changing for everyone who jumps on board. I constantly get like literally fan mail about especially dehumidifiers because if you've been living with damp in your home or you don't necessarily have a leak but the way the home is built it really holds on to humidity on the inside maybe you've got a shady part of the house and putting in a dehumidifier to control that indoor air humidity uh, in a regular um, situation where you don't have water damage is a game changer and people are constantly shocked by how much the dehumidifier pulls in. Um, and then if you do have water damage and you're addressing that, but you need to keep things dry so that mold can't proliferate further while you work on what needs fixing and removing, then that's a game changer as well. So, Something really excited happened this week, if you are listening live, is my TED Talk is live on YouTube on mold, of course. <laughs> uh, it was wonderful to be one of the speakers at TEDx Byron Women last year. Uh, the lineup was superb. I was with the gorgeous Jess Maguire from uh, Repairing Your Nervous System, as well as Erin uh, Lovell Verinder, both women I've had on the show before. And um, Erin talked about uh, her love of herbs and wanting everybody to fall in love the way she is. And uh, Jess talked about the nervous system. I talked about mould and uh, Oz Climate was actually one of the supporters of that TEDx event. 
and I'll add the link to the show notes of the talk if you want to check it out. It's my story, just me on a stage, very simple, in fact, uh, very simply dressed because my suitcase got lost in the flight and I had to race out and try and find a a top on a a Sunday afternoon in Byron and there really wasn't much open. (laughs) And it's not what I would have worn for a TED Talk, but here we are. Tangent, uh, what's really important is I asked us climate if there was anything extra they'd like to do given uh, my TEDx talk was live and they this week, so from June, uh, June 12 to 19, if you're lucky to be listening live, you have an extra 10% off. So LOWTOX20 is your Oz Climate code this week and that gives you 20% off their dehumidifiers and Winix air purifiers. Uh, please enjoy that and... Enjoy me talking ADHD right now. In fact, I'm not even going to pause and cut to a clip because I'm recording this right now. Uh, So the first thing I want to talk about is when I suspected I had ADHD. And it was when I was actually uh, filling out the forms for my son with his pediatrician. Uh, Shout out to Dr. Leila Masson. We've actually done a fantastic show a couple of years ago on focus and attention for kids because some kids actually just find it hard to focus in this modern day structure, right? It's not always ADHD. And that show, which I'll also link in the show notes, really helps helps step all the things you can do before you then go down an ADHD path. Because if you're not moving and getting sunlight and getting good nutrition and you hadn't addressed any deficiencies like vitamin B6 or zinc or magnesium, real key players in attention and focus... Um, then it's uh, much much harder to do all the things we've got to do and focus and, and get things done. So loved that show um, and uh, and love that uh, we we recognise just how much is modulatable about some of these traits that are shared with true ADHD, um, but in an otherwise healthy human who doesn't have the full picture are entirely modulatable. And of course, the good news is modulatable in ADHD peeps as well, uh, as I'll go on to talk about. So I was filling out these forms and I'm looking at the scales and I'm doing his results and I'm like, gee, I'm a bit like that too. And uh, yeah, that that's something I had trouble with at school, especially in the school and study sections about talking and interrupting and um, not wanting to sit still and definitely not liking it if I didn't like um, the subject of finding it very hard to get anything done just because it had to get done. I had to be passionate. It had to be huge. And, uh, so I'm filling it out and I'm like, oh gosh, this sounds like me. And, but I just kind of shelved it because, you know, I thought, well, if I've gotten this far in life, you know, I don't really need to worry about it too much, but something happened, uh, a couple of months later, we got a rescue doggy and this gorgeous, 14-month-old at the time retriever arrives in our house uh, and I shared that video with many of you and uh, it was a very joyful moment. I was told he just needs a walk in the morning, walk in the night, um, a little pee maybe during the day and a bit of a check-in and a cuddle and that's it. Um, But of course, (laughs) that's absolutely not it. For anyone who's had a 14-month-old 40-kilo dog, they're probably giggling right now saying, really, that's what you were told? I'm like, yeah. That's what I was told. So anyway, this dog is with me. I'm trying to get my work done. All of a sudden can't get any work done during the day, nothing. 
And that's okay for a week. I think, you know, I do really well at being a great dog mum. We go walking, we do stuff. I'm just not um, a dog mum though. And I actually have a business to run and a community to support. And that has a lot of moving parts that requires me to have my full focus and attention uh, much of the day. I really need peace and quiet. I then became depressed. First time in my life I had a true presentation of depression, spontaneously crying, feeling hopeless, um, really quite dark, and uh, I didn't know what to do, Uh, except that I knew that when pain came with the depression, which was almost like arthritic body, full body pain, I did know that there was some research on SAM-E, S-adenosimethionine, I think it is, and uh, I had some from back in the mould trials and, you know, getting recovering from SIRS and seeing what might work, I had some left from that. So I thought, well, it can't hurt. Um, And within three days I was, (laughs) it was actually just incredible. I was no longer depressed and I had absolutely no arthritic pain anywhere in my body. And I just was like, wow, that is incredible. Now I'm not telling everybody to rush out and buy Sammy without the help of your health practitioner. I'm just sharing my experience and the knowledge that I had around that compound being helpful in those cases. But what I saw for me was actually astounding. So at least it got me out of the mode of hopelessness and not being able to do anything because then I could actually try and find solutions. Um, That took a while. Uh, In fact, uh, it took a couple of months. We had him in daycare a couple of days a week, like a doggy daycare, Um, but he was still with me three days a week. And uh, even though I started to learn his routine, I started to see that he was sleeping pretty much from, you know, 8.30 till 11 every morning, why I was struggling to understand why I couldn't just buckle down and get a shed ton of work done then so that I could take that big break in the middle of the day and take him for a huge run and a walk and, and then relax in the afternoon, get him sleeping again and get working again. I couldn't seem to make it happen. And then it forced me to kind of look at how my days usually run when I am completely alone in the past. By the way, this is, we're now in sort of September, October, 2022. And I saw that actually all of my days were pretty the same when I didn't have a speaking gig in the lunchtime or I wasn't traveling, doing other things, just a regular work day was that I would faff around and answer a few emails and and pop into the gorgeous Low Tox Club Facebook group and uh, do bits and bobs like that. But really getting good, progressive, creative, deep work done seemed to happen at the very last hour of the day uh, and then I would do the work, uh, like superhuman levels of work, in that hour that most people would take their whole workday to get done, but I could somehow get it done. And so I had this pattern of rev up, no, dilly dally procrastinate, then um, rev up refocus. And that last cup of tea around four o'clock, I would then just power and motor until my son got home. Put a dog in the picture who starts to get restless, starts to hear the dogs down at the park because we've got a park right next door, barking and playing with each other, the 4 or 5 p.m. walks that they start going on with their owners. Um, 
you have a dog that really wants to play and do stuff right when I used to go into my superhuman mode. And so I would fall apart because it would mean I wouldn't get any deep work done. Um, and, and that was really quite devastating, uh, obviously financially devastating for a business owner who is, you know, it's just me and uh, an assistant part-time at the moment. And, um, and so something really needed to change. I couldn't, I couldn't just do that in two days. And then you've got life admin and all the other things. Uh, <laughs> let's not talk about admin just yet. I'll get into admin. Um, so it really made me start to think what is up here. And I really needed to try and understand why I didn't seem to be able to regulate my attention and get my work done in, in a normal sense of flow or choose when I went into let's get stuff done mode. Um, it seemed to choose me. And if I was lucky enough for it to arrive at around four, which I usually am, and I was completely alone, then I could get tons done. And so it really started to lead me down wanting to explore what this was, uh, so that I could have a look at what to do with it once I knew what it was. And of course, having done those forms for my son, it made me think, okay, maybe I need to look into ADHD more closely. I thought it was a kid thing. Like why do adults get it? Um, you know, could adults still have it? Like I thought you grew out of it, all this stuff. But as I started to look online and see who was talking about it, I came across account after account of adult ADHD peeps, um, some really wonderful ones, some very nurturing ones, uh, where I just started to see myself and my whole life play out over and over and over again. So I went to see what I could do about getting a diagnosis, saw my GP, I did the preliminary forms that he um, gave me where you and a family member who knows you fill them out to see whether it's worth getting an assessment, gave them back to him. He said, well, yes, this is definitely worth getting an assessment and uh, sent me off to the psychiatrist. So in New South Wales, the way it tends to work for adults, and it can be different, but um, depending, but it is psychiatrist diagnosis because, of course, you have the potential for medication to be prescribed and that medication to have a street value, they really need to be very regulated in the way that they come to the point of diagnosing someone with ADHD. Uh, and so most psychiatrists, which is unfortunately extremely expensive for the little guy, us, uh, tend to work with a psychologist. So it's a two or even three pronged attack, as it was in my case, of having the psychiatrist interview, the psychiatrist then sending you off for a cognitive test, then sending you off to do um, something like the Brown scale. You can look that up with a, psycholo with a psychologist as well, where you have a full, uh, it was an hour and a half interview, that one, um, going through a hundred points of daily life retrospectively and current day and, you know, scaling them one to one to five in terms of impact. And then, um, then going back to the psychiatrist and, uh, and having the diagnosis, I was pretty shocked when I went to the psychiatrist the second time, because waiting for me in the, um, waiting room was simply documents outlining the side effects of, of, uh, psychiatric drugs that pertain to the ADHD diagnosis, um, 
I, I'm so used to now the holistic framework of, okay, well, let's see how we might like to, you know, there isn't always just one way when you are in functional medicine and there isn't always one contributor and one solution. Um, but of course, conventional medicine waits for things to be bad enough to have an answer in prescribing a drug. And that's how it is at the moment. I genuinely hope that that's not how it stays, but that's where we are. And so while I was taken aback, I was, you know, um, and it did make me ask her a bunch of questions about the different options. I needed something gluten-free as a start if I was going to consider medication, which meant that the only um, non-compounded solution that you could readily, like I could walk that day into a chemist and um, have my prescription filled was dexamphetamine. Uh, and dexamphetamine works differently to Ritalin, the other form. And in different countries, they have different things. You might have heard of Concerta. Uh, Vivance is a long-acting um, dexamphetamine here in Australia uh, and overseas. Then there's Adderall, of course, slightly different. But each of them work to do something slightly different. And I've put in the show notes a, a psychiatrist that actually steps you through those differences as they pertain to how much of which neurotransmitters they um, increase the circulation uh, and of instead of uptake of in the brain. Uh, really good explanation. Um, so in that whole process, I discovered I was super smart. <laughs> so just below Mensa level. And uh, what was hilarious was I got near perfect scores on almost all the sections, except the section of repeating the story you've just been told and was just hilarious. Uh, so the psychologist who ran the cognitive test said, I'm just going to tell you a short story and all you need to do is tell me that short story back in as much detail as you can bring. And so he goes and he tells this story and it was about a minute long and then he says, now, just tell me what you remember from that story as if you were telling the story. And so I start and I say, so there was a, it was like a, you know, they were driving fast and it was, it was kind of day, like the weather wasn't great, but it was this monkey and I think he took the steering wheel and that's all I got. And it was quite late in the cognitive testing. So he'd obviously seen me do all of this amazing stuff and do super, super well at the test. I think my IQ is like 120, I think it's 126 or 128. I can't remember. Um, and then, and then get to this one. And then it was like, oh, well, I think we know which part of the brain's having a bit of trouble. It's certainly not the pattern recognition, pattern making, um, sense finding, reasoning parts. It's the recall and, uh, boy, that just, when I got the report on that, that was one of my first, let's look back in time. And I remember being a teenager, being 15, year 10. And, um, I remember my friends being frustrated if I had been the only one to watch the TV show that we were all watching at the time, let's call it Melrose Place. I'm Gen X. Shout out to anyone who remembers that one. Um, and, 
I rem- like I remember them thinking it was frustrating for me to be the one who'd watched it because they weren't going to get all the details. <laughs> and yet, if I was really interested in something that I felt everyone needed to know, I could recount crazy details and distill and make sense of. And so that for me was just fascinating from the workings of the brain perspective. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just started to amass slowly, slowly, uh, a bit of an understanding of who I was, where I'd come from and how ADHD had been prevalent my entire life. So I'll come back to talking about what i did next um, in terms of moving forward. Um, But I just want to share with you some of the things that uh, I started to realize as I had this combined type, 99% accurate, so basically a sure thing, ADHD. And what combined type means is you have the impulsive hyperactive aspect, but also the inattentive aspect. And as I started to look at different health professionals and how they were talking about ADHD and how they had educated or researched it in their careers, I started to see a bit of conflict and people having their own take, let's say. But I also started to see some really fantastic research uh, and some excellent uh, expl- explanations of ADHD. So, um, it's, uh, as I go, I'll, I'll probably start to share some of them. Um, but I, I really like that, uh, say Dr. Russell Barkley, for example, doesn't talk about it being a, an issue with attention. It's an issue with the direction of attention, for example. And I think that's a really important distinction. Um, you know, you've all got a friend or maybe it's you who can just sit down and get stuff done, no matter whether they are particularly interested in it or not. They just know it needs to get done, so they do it. Uh, Someone with ADHD is, you know, who has an issue, as Dr. Amen, Dr. Daniel Amen talks about, with blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, as they try to focus harder to do the thing they know they need to get done, their brain is actually going to find it even harder to get the thing done. So the act of trying to concentrate actually depletes the prefrontal cortex's blood flow even more. And, of course, you could then argue the nervous system stress implication of ADHD so that they have even less of a chance of getting it done. Uh, And that to me was fascinating. So try harder. I mean, what do we tell our kids? Try harder, focus more, sit down and focus. And if your kid has ADHD, then that's going to be the absolute worst thing you could possibly make them do because you have even less of a chance of it actually happening. And, you know, it makes me think of the gorgeous couple, um, Roxy and Rich from ADHD Love, who I absolutely adore. Um, You can follow them on Instagram or TikTok. And it makes me think about them and the, um, the book that they wrote, Dirty Laundry, where she explains and he explains as well because he's neurotypical and she's ADHD, she's got ADHD, they explain that working together to actually be compassionate when the ADHD has, and I'm, yeah, uh, later, uh, the person with diagnosed ADHD has an issue. Like, so let's just say you forget your 
um, you lose your car keys again. Um, if your compassionate neurotypical person says, okay, well, that sucks. Let's sit down and have a think about what we can do about it. That means that that person with ADHD is going to be, if they get that reaction over and over again, is going to be less and less likely to screw up and forget things or lose things down the track than if their support person who was neurotypical reacted in such a way that was, oh, my gosh, that's the third time this year. I can't believe you've done that. Like, what are we going to do? Like, we can't keep buying new keys. Then the person with ADHD is going to be more and more likely to screw up, forget things and lose things. And that for me shows just how important the stress and the impact we're putting on people's nervous systems is a huge player in the modulatable part of some of the aspects of ADHD because there are some fixed parts and there are some modulatable parts. That's my own realisation. That's not a doctor or a, a researcher talking, but that's the way I see it as I've started to dig into this. Um. So some of the things I processed as I got this diagnosis, I thought about school and things came up and I talked to a couple of old friends and one of my old friends, shout out to Pip Baker, said, uh, you know, when we were kids, it used I used to be really confused by you were massively into, um, you know, breakdancing, for example, one day and then the next day it was something totally different and then we were into that for a couple of months and, you know, you were so enthusiastic and so good at getting me into it that I was, I would just go along for the show and, but then I'd be really sad that I wouldn't get to keep being interested in this thing that I had just built all this interest in because we had, we were moving on. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, thank gosh you shared that with me. That's so impactful and insightful in terms of how friendships have played out in my life in some cases. Like, I'm very grateful to have a a few lifers in there, but there are a lot of people who I thought were going to be lifers who aren't. And I think part of that was us not understanding each other. Um, You know, I'm not going to say part of that was me having ADHD because it's not my fault. But if you don't understand each other um, and your drivers as friends, um, and if you don't feel like you can talk about it or you get heard or you, you get seen or vice versa, then those friendships are going to fall apart or fall away. And, uh, and that has definitely happened for me a few times. And I look back and I think, gosh, I was so gung-ho. I was so impulsive and spontaneous. I would just show up at a friend's house. And, like, over time, you know, that, that could have been really tough for them. But I didn't know that what I was doing was tough for them because they couldn't talk about it and I didn't have the self-awareness to understand that I might have a propensity to be impulsive uh, and that I could actually put some strategies in place to say, gosh, if I'm having this impulsive feeling, what are the couple of questions I can ask myself? Have I checked in with them first about whether this is a good time to go over? Um, Are they trying to get some study done or have some time with their boyfriend right now or partner. Um, and it's not the time for me to go over, you know, we still had only landlines back then, um, in early years uni, but 
these are just some of the things that I started to reflect on. So I started to reflect on some of the more unfortunate things, but I also then started to reflect on the bigger picture of what was unfortunate about that situation rather than just poor me, ADHD. It really started to emerge um, that society in ignoring neurodivergence and in trying to make the portion of people who have these brains that do operate differently um, in various different ways and with various different presentations and labels and diagnoses and um, and all the rest, um, we are ignoring the good in people um, by exploiting and focusing on the sh- the supposed shortcomings by definition of what um, being a good student at school looks like or being a good worker in the office. So I remember being pulled into my principal's office in years, year 11 or 12 with my parents and he was perplexed as to how I could be so smart and so enthusiastic and yet um, underperforming in so um, many areas. And when I say underperforming, it wasn't even dire, but like 60s and 70s where um, clearly my enthusiasm and my understanding of things looked like it should be 90s. And it was the sentence that uh, was replayed several times in teenage life and uh, young adulthood, which was, you have so much potential, you are so clever, why are you wasting it? Why aren't you working harder? And that's it, folks. And imagine if you are a kid who hears that over and over and over again, bosses, teachers, um, my maths teacher, my gosh, Mrs. Dennis, if you're listening, (laughs) Um, and your beautiful handwriting that I still remember because of my beautiful brain. Um, If you're listening uh, and you're frustrated at those students who engineer everything not to be in maths class because they can't handle the thought of being given a whole bunch of rules to figure out puzzles. But you have a kid who gets 70% in a test when she didn't go to a single one of your maths classes for that entire subject because she had various drum lessons, singing lessons, piano lessons that she factored that happened to coincide with it so that she wouldn't have to go to maths. Why don't we celebrate the 70% and think, wow, let's try and harness the way your brain does respond to maths because you're clearly really good at this. And I was, and I love puzzles so much, but I was figuring puzzles out in maths with my own rules that I came up with in the exam myself uh, to work them out in a different way to the curriculum. And Imagine how broken a system is when we're not recognising those smarts. Um, And it's broken not because the teachers suck. They're amazing too, but they're all trying to work in a system that largely needs to be formulaic and process-driven to get any results or to create any efficiency. Um, And so it's it's really... um, a rock and a hard place for many of our teachers. Uh, they're frustrated. And, and of course, you match that with a lack of understanding of how to get the best out of neurodivergent kids, ADHD, autism spectrum, um, or otherwise named or unnamed. And, um, and you think, gosh, we're really wasting a lot of talent there. Another example I could give is 
in work. I started in a corporate job at the ripe old age of 21. I was brought into the office because I had tripled the sales of one of the counters of a beautiful cosmetic, the French cosmetics brand. And they thought, I reckon she could do this for many of our counters. Let's bring her on as an account executive. And so I was in the travel retail duty free sector. And sure enough, because of my passion, enthusiasm and developing training programs, yes, I've been a trainer, teacher, motivator, literally my entire working life. Um, I was able to increase sales massively and uh, then they gave me a bigger region. I started to travel to New Zealand. Then I did Fiji as well. Then I got the French Pacific because I spoke French fluently. So there I am in business class at the age of 23, uh, traveling to Tahiti and Noumea um, and places like that for work, running training sessions, talking to our customers over there and, uh, and having incredible results. Now, I was really great at getting those results. I was not really great at the follow-through aspect of then um, processing the order and talking to France and getting the shipping and logistics organized and getting the product to the customer in that country or that airport or whatever in my region. The follow-up part was not me. And so it was decided that I would be um, put in back into a more local role where I could have the state manager instead of the national travel retail manager um, to report to. And that state manager would work with me really closely to work on the shortcomings. This this is the the word in performance management, shortcomings of my skill set and to try and build up that gap. I look back at that whole experience now. So when that happened, I started to feel quite toxic towards my um, my job. Uh, I learnt during this diagnosis and beyond process about rejection-sensitive dysphoria where taking rejection or negative feedback is amplified in the ADHD brain and one could, of course, say, ooh, that's another nervous system implication. There needs to be some nervous system work there and I really believe that's a huge part of Um, ensuring people with ADHD have um, the opportunity to live a great, um, prosperous life is to focus on those things that can be hugely beneficial, like the example of losing the car keys that I talked about with with just before. Uh, So I look back at this and how negative I started to feel and how awful I felt spending most of my time in the office I could not work in a cubicle with a whole bunch of people talking about all sorts of things, work or unwork related. I started to become that person having the cigarette on the balcony. Yes, I used to smoke folks Um, uh, more and more and chat and and I, I started to bitch about my job. I'd never been negative towards work. I love work. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And I started to feel allergic to my new job structure and... And I ended up quitting to become, of all things, a singer-songwriter and to explore my singing and songwriting. Um, So if that's not a sign of creativity being stifled and then needing to take a very extreme measure to um, throw the towel in and gamble um, on, on that, I don't know what is. And I look back and I think at the point where someone realised 
that we were losing sales because of my follow-up issue was when I should have been given an assistant, not when I should have been performance managed and made to work harder on follow-up. You get me? Uh, And this I see all over the place in terms of how broken we are in terms of listening to what a person is really good at, drawn to and excels at and flourishes in versus getting them to do what it says on the paper your job description does and if you can't then you have to work harder in that place, that place, that place, even if you're 10xing in two areas of the job. That to me is broken in many, many corporate uh, office business, it doesn't even need to be corporate, small business owners do this to employees as well. We are not seeing the magic in some people as being enough and, and, and letting them go with that and see where it takes them. And we are instead trying to create complete packages of humans that can be everything to everyone in the job description. And from the way I see it, is that is actually really dysfunctional and we are leaving a lot of potential on the table by trying to make people do stuff that makes them feel like they're pushing poo uphill and that they will do slower than someone who does have the zone of genius that speaks to that particular aspect of the job. Uh, So for me, one of the most exciting, I've been a business consultant, executive coach and um, for many years, since 2004, actually, and, uh, and across two industries, three now. It's one of the reasons I started the Low Tox Method program to support people to explore what a business might look like and to get those foundational skills to make it a business they love, um, which you can, of course, always check out. We'll be running another um, round in September. Um, and it really started to make me think during this diagnostic experience and then the retrospective look at my life and where if only they had actually recognized something in me, uh, things could have been done very differently. I could have had a lot less shame and guilt and I suck and I'm hopeless for the things that, well, actually suck and I'm hopeless at, but having shame and guilt around them instead of outsourcing them and actually working effectively to harness everybody's different types of zones of genius and and ways people's brains work, um, it blows my mind that we're not doing that. And the best businesses and uh, the best communities, and if you think about Indigenous communities, are you know, there's evidence to suggest that there is a genetic selection for uh, ADHD because it actually helped us progress as humans. And if you start to look into people in history who've had ADHD, you start to see names like Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci. As we know, when someone looks at them, the way they worked, the way they were frenetic about very small things that they went down rabbit holes to exploit and do and achieve and create and design and invent. Uh, Wow, right? Um, and, And they felt so strongly pulled to their work, even though a lot of it was half finished projects in all sorts of different areas that other scientists had to then come and realize and, uh, and get across the finish line. Um, Imagine if we all were starting to be supported in a way that meant we were rounding each other out. Look at that diversity of interconnectedness 
and creating a web and a network of interconnected skills and people, we then build a much stronger whole, right? If you think of um, Alan Savory's work, the Zimbabwean cattle farmer who designed rotational grazing as a way to regenerate land and have healthy animals and restore biodiversity to the landscape, he talks about holistic decision-making beyond cows and as a much bigger picture thing. And this whole process for me has actually made me think about holistic design for community, for business, uh, for school and education, and how we can actually start to build much more robust systems with many more healthy, happy humans, animals, insects, land, by simply allowing people to be who they are, exploring what that is, seeing what gifts they want to share, how best they can share them, and setting the stage for that to happen. It's kind of like the ingredients of, you know, putting in your sunlight and your um, healthy nutrients through food and good quality clean water full of minerals and lots of good movement and that setting the stage for a human to be able to be healthy. For example, imagine what starting to think about stage setting better in our schools, workplaces uh, and communities looks like uh, to actually build true robustness and resilience and a sense of value, belonging and purpose. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking now and I'm thinking, wow, I had this, this whole plan and now I've gone on this whole philosophical tangent. That is my ADHD brain seeing a pattern you know, pattern recognition is, and this is where I use superpower because boy, is it a superpower. You recognize patterns, you extrapolate, you see how it can apply somewhere else and you go boom. And not many people can do that. And ADHD peeps can. And if we harness that in them, um, then we can really make some amazing, um, progress. And, and then the people who are the doers who can, do the sitting down and who can get the stuff done, bring it all to life, right? I remember when I told um, my bookkeeper who had worked with me in the business more before she had um, her third boy that I had ADHD and uh, and that it's been quite a summer to explore that and process it. She's like, gosh, I never would have picked you with ADHD given you've accomplished so much. And I've accomplished so much because I've wired myself towards my greatest interests and passions and I've found ways to actually do that because I did have a lot of encouragement and support and enthusiasm growing up um, for what I was good at. And that was from my parents largely um, and from certain teachers who who gave me a belief in myself in a part. So even though I did have a huge dose of shame and guilt for the bits I sucked at, I really did have this dose of belief as well. And I think that's one of the reasons, as my psychiatrist said, I flew under the radar and one of the first um, analogies that I came up with when I was telling a friend about how I got to 47 without anyone knowing was that Catherine Zeta-Jones scene in Entrapment where she's avoiding the red lasers as she moves across the floor. Um, I don't even remember what the rest of Entrapment was about, but I think it was a heist of some kind maybe. Um, and she's avoiding these lasers and going undetected. And this is what adult ADHD diagnosis is in part. 
and why so many women are being diagnosed in uh, their 20s, 30s and 40s who missed uh, having a young person, you know, a school diagnosis or a young child is because um, girls tend to be much more... um, pleasing. We are taught to please. We are taught to therefore mask and put away anything that might be going on for us because we have to be good girls and we have to help out and we have to um, look nice and be polite. And, you know, and so there's not much room to explore self-expression uh, in that framework societally. And and so it's really only for many women in adulthood that you then start to have these feelings of incongruence as you think, God, I just don't feel like I'm living a life on purpose or true to myself or values. I don't even know what they are. Um, and all I know is, uh, I can't focus on this stuff anymore and I want to go do this. And, and you start to feel like you want to burst out of a cage. Uh, I would so love to hear if anyone's had that same feeling. Um, I've, I've felt it a couple of times, I have to say. And, and so, uh, yeah, if I give other examples of where ADHD has negatively impacted me, it would definitely be in, um, in uh, administration. So direct debit was the best thing that ever happened to me because before then I would pay things late. It wasn't because I couldn't pay them. It was because I just, <laughs> I didn't have a system. I couldn't make a system if I tried in that kind of methodical sense. Um and, uh, and so like for me, it was easier to keep forgetting to find the time to prioritize getting a parking permit than it was to get parking tickets and then have them be late and then have the debt collection one where they added the $50 on and then pay that. I did that a million times, not a million times, but many, many times, thousands and thousands of dollars, um, uh, in late payment fees for things. Uh, and that's really huge in terms of the implication, you know, I think about how many times I I should have just been, you know, and this is where guidance comes in. If you then know your young person has ADHD, you can guide, you can watch more closely on the things that they really struggle with and support them instead of chastising them, Um, and, and, you know, in my life, I wasn't really even chastised that much. I just didn't share what I sucked at because I was so ashamed. And that meant I didn't get the help I needed. Whereas if I had talked to my parents or, or other adults about how I really struggled in this area, then they could have helped me figure it out. Um, I could have said, I just don't know how to save 10 grand because that's all it would have been to buy a studio 25 years ago, um, for a deposit. And they could have helped me do that. And this is where talking about what you find hard instead of not wanting to bother people or feeling ashamed and keeping it a secret is so important. And I still sometimes don't today. And I'm getting better at it as I work through the shame piece of a lifetime of feeling like I sucked at certain aspects and why couldn't I just get it done? Why couldn't I just focus? Um, but the healing is happening and, um, while, while slow, it's really quite exciting to think about what the next chapter could mean. And even though I'm so shitty, (laughs) pardon the French, at some of the parts that I really could have with some more structure, with some recognition due to a diagnosable, 
uh, whatever you want to call it, whether you call it the neurodevelopmental disorder, mental disorder, psychiatric disorder, um, uh, aspects of um, ADHD uh, that negatively impact life rather than the positive ones that magically impact life, um, you know, they're still part of getting life done. They're still important. And I really believe that if we can support the people who do have it, then we can have a much better outcome for them for their life. And they can feel supported as they move through the bits that they find hard instead of put down or ridiculed or worse, like I did, just not talking about it at all because you feel embarrassed and ashamed. So um, those were really the negative aspects. And I've come to this place where I obviously now have interviewed over 300 different doctors, scientists over the years, and we've talked about all sorts of topics. And I've come to this place where I see that there is a part of ADHD, uh, let's call them symptoms, if we are going to go in the disorder framework, um, that are modulatable based on lifestyle, nutrition, uh, aspects, and then some that are not. So your brain just seems to work in a different way. And that's that beautiful neurodivergence piece, the pattern recognition, um, the distillation of complex information into something incredibly simple. Uh, you know, Richard Branson, hello, there's another example. Um, and, uh, and so while I don't want to talk about ADHD as a, oh, I'm now trying to cure my ADHD at all, I recognize there's a personal education and responsibility aspect to supporting yourself, or if it's a child or a partner, to supporting them with making sure that they are ticking off those lifestyle essentials, getting awareness on any nutrient deficiencies or imbalances. And by imbalances, I mean uh, nutrients like minerals that work on a scale like copper and zinc are kind of like on a seesaw together and you want them to be balanced. Um, you know, vitamin B6 uh, and, and magnesium in deficiency can exacerbate uh, ADHD um, symptoms, for example. If you can get all of those right, you're giving yourself a much better chance at not finding things so terribly difficult. Um, and, uh, and that can be a real, a real help and it can make the overall picture a bit easier. And I definitely know that probably the biggest impact on the modulatable aspects, um, forgetfulness, working memory, um, impulsivity, uh, uh, rejection, sensitive dysphoria, for example, those ones, um, bringing a calm nervous system to your ADHD person uh, is going to be paramount to them actually um, finding anything easier that they currently find really hard. Uh, that's huge. And what has been super special is um, bringing that to um, my husband, my family, and um, the amount of compassion that it has been met with. It's deepened relationships. It's helped people understand some of those quirks much more. Simple example I was sharing with my sister the other day. Um, 
I don't know how it came up, but it did. And I shared with her that the act of brushing my teeth in the morning uh, is not just, oh, that's what I do right now. I've had my shower, brush my teeth. I think, oh gosh, I don't, yeah, I could brush my teeth now, but then I'm just about to have a cup of tea and I don't want the tea to be minty. Um, And then after that, I'll be having lunch. So I guess I should probably wait till after lunch, but then I can, it feels like there's some ugh on my teeth now. So I probably should do it now. Then maybe if I had a glass of water before I had the cup, this is the stuff my brain does. Um, it is estimated. Uh, I remember when I did my first QEEG with Seb at Neurofeedback, one of the things that we've worked on and tried, um, which I love, by the way, um, uh, as, uh, as an option, is um, that his brain was taking in 200 times the information of a normal brain. So I was very busy in there and a lot of ADHD people talk about this. Um, right now, for example, if I started to articulate everything I was hearing as I was having this chat with you, I can hear a plane coming in overhead. I can hear a siren a little bit further away. I heard the little dog downstairs whimper because his dog owner just went out because I heard the door downstairs. Uh, I heard the postman down the street, um, letting them know that they've got a parcel. And I'm having this chat with you now in relatively decent coherence, but it illustrates how much an ADHD brain is moving through to still do the things that are expected of it to do. And so it's kind of like you are living life on an obstacle course in permanence. (laughs) I just came up with that then, but my God, that's accurate. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Ah, and so I've had a bunch of community questions. I hope you guys aren't bored. I don't even know when I started recording this, but I feel like I've been talking for a really long time and I really do want to get to the community questions that came up when I shared it with you. So I'm going to share um, this one. Why choose to get diagnosed um, if you're not going to take medication? Well, uh, I certainly didn't think I was going to try medication. I have since, and I can talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, but, um, I think for me, it was actually just a part of making peace with me and, uh, sharing more of me in a way that allowed other people around me to understand me and having that diagnosis, really helped other people go, oh, wow. So you've been through one psychiatrist and two psychologists and spent four hours on this diagnosis with people asking you questions and analyzing how you lived life as a kid now. Uh, So I guess you do have ADHD. How can I help? Instead of just kind of knowing it about yourself and saying it to a friend saying, I think I've got this. And and then it it just feels like actually for me, and because I'm not telling anyone they have to get diagnosed, absolutely not. feels like for me, that was a really helpful part of me now building the way forward. Um, What's another question uh, someone had? Okay. So I had come to believe that ADHD was a behavior trait, not an illness. Am I naive? Um, now look, I'll just emphasize that I'm not a mental health professional in the ADHD space. Um, but I, in looking at it online, there are people that call it a behavior disorder, a neuro neurodevelopmental disorder, mental disorder, psychiatric disorder, 
And but the issue where that question um, takes um, the ability to to take hold, I guess, is that some features of ADHD as a, a, a I don't like the word disorder because well. Everything that I've said so far helps you see that it's actually just about engineering for success for different humans the way they are, um, as well as supporting people in the things they find hard and and helping them find ways to excel in the areas they want to excel in naturally. Uh, and Ken Rob- Sir Ken Robinson talked about this in his TED Talk uh, where they wanted to medicate this little girl. It's like she doesn't, she doesn't have a disorder. She's a dancer, you know. I just loved that um, because I really believe that a huge part of us moving forward as a society in recognising neurodivergence is to also celebrate the um, the uniqueness of each other's brains and, and engineer for success and fulfilment and sense of purpose. Um so the issue is we can get confused because some of the disorder traits are um, personality traits. So, oh, gosh, she's so impulsive or, oh, she's so forgetful. But ADHD as a whole has so much more to it than traits, if that makes sense. Because if you then start to look at some of the clinical definitions by various psychiatrists, I'll read a couple out to you. Um, I'm going to take this one from Dr. Russell Barkley, who developed his entire career to ADHD. Uh, he's published over a thousand studies, uh, written a bazillion books. Um, I think it's over 20 books. I think it's actually even like 60 or something crazy. But uh, uh, just a paragraph out of uh, uh, his um, longer definition is simply put the etiology of ADHD is complex and can involve multiple causes to date all of the major ones fall in the realm of neurology and genetics biological causation with no evidence that social factors alone can account for the condition However, there is some evidence that a few social factors, chronic stress, global adversity, and I would add to that because of the wonderful book of Johan Hari's recently, Stolen Focus, the new social media and online landscape, might interact with genetic liability to disorder to exacerbate it. So this is what I talk about. Some of it's modulatable and some of it's fixed uh, is where I've arrived in studying these wonderful professionals who've dedicated decades to studying ADHD and and brains. Um, Most such environmental factors that are related to ADHD in the category of biohazards such as head trauma, other neurological injuries, lead poisoning or toxin exposures, we see the research on mold and ADHD, for example, such as alcohol during pregnancy, significant premature birth, etc. Um, he then goes on to explain them later. I'll link this in the show notes. Um, here is a relatively simple explanation of the co- complex causation of ADHD. ADHD represents the extreme end of the distribution of several highly correlated normal traits in the human population just like intelligence. In this case, these are inattention, specifically distractibility, poor persistence or sustained attention, um, or as I say, selective uh, attention, um, inhibition and distractibility, poor persistence, oh, sorry, uh, inhibition and executive function, self-regulation, 
when the degree of deficits or symptoms in these traits reach a certain point where they lead to harm to the individual, impairment in major domains of life activities, increased increased risk of injury or death, then these deficits become a disorder. Uh, So the status of a disorder begins where the harm or impairment begins in such case of dimensional traits. So basically, if your traits have caused um, hardship in your life beyond being able to get simple aspects of living a life done, so um, relationships, finances, all that kind of stuff, then you are classified as having the disorder. Um, And that can be kids, adults, anyone in between. Uh, So... What causes the variation in these traits in the human population, especially at the extremes? Uh, And then he goes on and on to talk about how far and away the most significant contributor is genetics, around 75 to 80%. And uh, this man has dedicated, as I said, his entire life to it. And then you have health professionals like Gabor Mate, for example, Uh, who talk about trauma uh, and uh, childhood and connection uh, and, um, and that kind of stuff. And that, I believe, is key and helpful to how badly exacerbated the genetic, um, uh, stage that was set is into how much the traits impact you. Uh, and so, um, So I really hesitate to generalise or make any black and white statements about what ADHD is and isn't when there are some variable aspects to how much um, all of the traits that are linked to the, I'm saying disorder because that's the word that's used, um, are. uh, Then you have the modulatable, the lifestyle, the family situation, trauma, uh, head trauma, as they said, toxin exposure, then you have this baseline of the population who um, who tend to um, be by far and away um, uh, diagnosable through genetics. So there you have it, folks. And, uh, and if we look back in time at all the fantastic scientific and uh, uh, inventor minds, Um, many of them had these traits, many of them had ADHD. And so that is why we think this genetics is actually important to humans uh, for the fact that it helped us impact life in in many very positive, amazing, creative ways as well. So that's that question. Um, I've been asked another community question here, what do you do to calm the mind? Uh, sport and movement have been absolutely huge for me. And I've noticed when I can't move, like when I broke my foot recently, uh, I do, my traits are worse, uh, and it is harder to tame them. Uh, in terms of what that is for me, fast moving sport is great. I love tennis. Uh, tennis is fantastic for cognitive function as well. Uh, there's a lot of research on racket sports and, uh, cognitive health, Um, Now, that's not why I took up tennis. Again, I took it up because it was my favourite childhood sport. And one of the things I realise in ADHD is when you lose the structure and framework of school and you're out in the wide, wide world, you often forget that you had a favourite sport that brought you to life and you absolutely loved it. And I didn't play for 20 years. It's crazy. 
but of course picked it up and just fell back in love with it, obsessed, and uh, and now I'm I'm playing comp and in Division One. And so, and, and tennis is great because it's fast moving and I have to act in, tennis is basically a series of mini crises that you have to problem solve, uh, to come out and win. And so it turns out that this is actually where ADHDers rise to the task and are incredibly excellent problem solvers in a crisis. Um, so if going to the gym or just walking doesn't seem to be floating your boat or modulating your symptoms for the better, um, then try something actually quite uh, intense and see if it actually helps raise your dopamine, which the more intense it is, the better it is. Dr. Daniel Amen says always walk like you're running late, especially if you've got ADHD. Um, and then see how you go with that. Uh, a couple of other things nutraceutically that I do, I take ubiquinol, essential to um, the middle-aged female in general, I think, uh, from what I've uh, uh, heard from the wonderful doctors that I've interviewed over the years, um, which is fantastic for mitochondria and fantastic for energy production in the body. Um, very supportive for neurotransmitters. I take L-theanine, which is a green tea extract. Um, doesn't have caffeine in it, but it it calms the mind without being drowsy. This can be an excellent thing to take. Um, naturopath uh, many years ago recommended it to me when I was having trouble sleeping with mold before we even knew it was mold. But it, it's an excellent thing to calm the mind without making it drowsy. So you can also take it during the day. But for the nighttime ADHD, if you have ruminating thoughts, it's excellent for that as well. Cursetin uh, and resveratrol, two very powerful antioxidants. If we know that ADHD symptoms are modulated in part by um, environmental toxins, then it is our job to make sure we're eating a ton of fruits and vegetables, many different colours, and getting all of those phytonutrients in, getting the antioxidants in, but I supplement in addition with quercetin and resveratrol. And then uh, Dr. Ja- uh, Dr. James Greenblatt, who I had on the show a few a couple of months ago, uh, who's a functional psychiatrist and who teaches psychiatrists how to more holistically manage uh, ADHD uh, with their patients, uh, says that 95% of people with ADHD are magnesium deficient. I take a really good complex that has many different forms of magnesium uh, and that's actually from a, a formulation by the late, oh, the late Dr... Um, uh, Stephen Sinatra, uh, America's first integrative cardiologist, who's, who was just such a crazy good human, uh, who passed away last year. Um, I'd had him thankfully on the show three times and on our inflammation ninja course. Um, he's amazing. And this magnesium supplement that I use, that's his formulation, um, now, uh, sold by his wonderful son, who's a naturopathic physician, uh, is great because it has many forms of magnesium. I'll put that in the show notes as well. B6 is key. Uh, the active form P5P is really key. Uh, and zinc tends to be key as well, or at the very least checking your zinc and copper and making sure they're in a one-to-one balance. And if they're not modulating that accordingly with supplementation with the guidance of a practitioner, because now you're very much getting into, um, into practitioner territory in terms of rather than over the counter, just sort yourself out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that's pretty much my mind calming stack. And then of course, getting sunlight, 
uh, trying to remove um, too much stress in my life uh, and really prioritizing myself sometimes so that I'm coming from an empty cup, not coming from an empty cup. So sleep, um, doing things that I find joy in connecting with friends, things that really calm the mind because they feel good, right? And when we feel good, we're not stressed. And the less stressed we feel, the better chance we have of not having those modulatable traits uh, skyrocket into dysfunction, um, fully outright. Um, much better to be slightly crap at um, admin and accounting than to be absolutely awful, right? <laughs> if it's your predisposition, you want to give yourself the best chance. So thank you for that question. Another question is why so many people being diagnosed now? Is this a new must-have? And I get that that is a question. I, I don't believe that was a facetious question, um, but it's a genuine question. Like if you don't have ADHD and you're typical neurotypical person and you're seeing all these, oh God, the latest person to have ADHD is XYZ. And he, oh, guess what? That person too. What is up with that? And I think we need to um, realize that most of medical research was young men and boys uh, until very recently. We're talking until the 1990s when women's health research started to be done in a much more serious way. And so you have, uh, of course, it was white boys as well. So very underrepresented groups, minority groups, women. And so a lot of us fell by the wayside and weren't seen. And so you have these groups who now have this social media landscape where you can, you get served different things and things pop up that you'd never really thought about before. And then boom, you're going, oh my gosh, this person's describing themselves. And that sounds exactly like me. And they have ADHD. I'm going to look into more of this and look at more people sharing about ADHD. And oh my gosh, they're talking about me as if it's me and not them as well. And that is then causing these people to reach out. Another huge group of people, they're doing it for their kids because our generation of parents is so self-aware and we want to help our kids and and we notice uh, things and, and, and move, move quickly to, to support them. We have tools and we have uh, the ability to research it much more easily than previous generations of parents. And so we're there filling out their forms and then thinking, gosh, this sounds like me. And that is often a way that a lot of people start unfolding their own ADHD journey. So hopefully that helps you understand if you're not an ADHD um, diagnosed person listening in and you're maybe listening to this show to just learn more about it or maybe support someone in your life, then boom, that could be uh, helpful to just start thinking about that that way. Now, are people misdiagnosed with ADHD? Actually, yes, I believe that to be true as well. We have to, and this is why most psychiatrists involve cognitive testing and a separate um, psychologist interview with the Brown Scale um, session, is because they want to be sure that they are looking at the full life of this adult human who is coming to them to see that there were signs of ADHD throughout their entire lives, not just now. Um, because like, let's just say your estrogen levels are dropping and you've got perimenopause and going into menopause. And when the estrogen leaves the building, all of a sudden you find yourself, God, I've never been a ditzy person. I've never forgotten stuff like this. I've never, you know, and then you start seeing ADHD content and you think, oh my gosh, I've got ADHD. Um, Maybe you do not. Maybe you actually need some practitioner support, some hormonal support, and um, that 
those couple of traits that overlap with ADHD could be uh, supported in a better way to help you move through those uh, hormone changes. Um, Could little kids be misdiagnosed with ADHD? Are we too quick with the prescription pad? I believe yes as well. So I did a show with our paediatrician, Dr. Leila Masson, on focus and attention. Um, And I did that show because I wanted parents to realise in this busy modern world, we're ferrying kids around to a million activities. They're spending way too much time indoors, way too little movement, uh, way too little free play and chance to explore uh, the natural world and their interests. And then we sit them in a fluorescent classroom and, um, and and farm them to all of these enrichment courses. And and this is not a judgment. We are only what we realise we are until we start to realise it and, and maybe want to change it a little bit, if not a lot. Um, and then we expect focus and attention on demand. Have we given that child everything that they need and deserve to then be able to be focused and attentive when they need to be. And I think there is work to do in a lot of cases to make sure we're ticking those boxes. I, um, for example, would, well, would, would suggest, I guess, that everybody look at all the things you can do for focus and attention, such as diet, look at your environmental toxic exposures, look at your gut health. We know, of course, about the microbes in the gut directly impacting the brain. Um, uh, Look at, you know, your digestive enzyme production, stomach acids, all of these things are known to be building blocks for our neurotransmitters. Inflammation, obviously, leaky gut being very bad for our uh, zinc production. Um you know, so gut health, look at that, look at your immune dysregulation. If there's anything going on there, uh, look at, um, oh, of course, uh, what was I going to say? Um, are there a couple more that I wanted to mention stress of course, and are they sleeping enough? And if everything there is pretty good and there are still a bunch of, um, traits, and they're displaying, then maybe you do have that genetic component. And maybe there really is not much we can do other than say, hey, this is ADHD. How can we help this human? How can we help? Right? So that is, I believe, a really important part of this. And of course, all of those things I just listed are really important as well for the ADHD person to prioritize maybe even more than other humans because it can modulate their already predisposed genetic traits much more severely, right? So that's what I have to say about that. Now let's go to the next question, studying with ADHD. I'm 50 and boy, uh, retaining information, reading, help. I would say there that you have to do some work and do retrospective work. This is really helpful, right? Look at the teachers you had in school. Look at the ones you liked and the ones you didn't. Look at the subjects you liked in school. Look at the ones you didn't. And look at how those great teachers taught. What was it about them that you loved? Is it that they made you feel seen and uh, and heard? And is that why you flourished? 
Or is it because they had a novel, exciting way of explaining things to make you interested in it? Because the ADHD brain requires novelty. Is it because, did you not like a teacher because they were overly harsh and told you you needed to pick up your socks and do better and focus? And that rejection and that stress actually caused you to close up and do even worse and it became a negative feedback loop. Um, When it came to the subjects themselves, how were they disseminated? Was it predominantly like... um, reading, discussing, talking, or was there a bit of writing on the board and then they'd show a documentary and then you'd go on a field trip and then you'd uh, write your reflection and then you got to give a presentation so you got to speak and then you could do an essay. Did you have like lots of different components making it a bit more exciting and varied and novel and fun? Because ADHD peeps, if you just are doing an online course and it's just writing and then you have to write your thing and then you have to submit it, chances are you're not going to do so great at that. So your job is then to maybe copy paste that into a um, an AI solution that then reads it to you and maybe you can head out into nature in barefoot and listen it to it. You know, I started reading again with the advent of Audible because I could I could get out into nature or I could be in the car on the open road and I could listen to the wondrous book that I wanted to. But stick me on a couch inside reading a book and saying, okay, you're going to read for an hour and I can see I do it to my son. He's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm like, crap, I'm doing to you what people did to me and I'm wondering why it's not working. Whoops. Um yeah, you know, so think about the way you learn best and that will that answer will come in retrospect, looking back at how you learned well in different situations and how you where you didn't. And then start if your your uni that you're doing um is geared towards a way of learning that you don't learn well in, find technological ways to change that up and create the novelty um yourself. So pick up the curriculum, do what you need with it to bring it to life in a way that you find novel and exciting. And I find connecting to why you're doing it in the first place often and dreaming up the scenario of once you're qualified and and, and playing it out is a really great idea as well. So I hope that helps. Um, other questions. Um, what have I got here? Um <laughs> Do you think uh, it would have been helpful to be more diagnosed as a young person? Hands down, absolutely yes. Uh, And then this person, do you believe it's a superpower? I don't. Um, I believe generalising and saying having ADHD is having a superpower is a very perfect example of toxic positivity because it allows for no room for finding any of it hard because you're supposed to be excited that you have this superpower. And that can massively backfire on an individual's navigation of ADHD and their ability to um, see the positives of the way your brain works. Um, And it can shame you further about what you find hard. So I don't believe we should generalise and call it a superpower, the whole condition disorder, whatever you want to say, diagnosis. Um, But I do believe if humans are helped to find where their brain and how their brain flourishes, what 
ways of learning truly excite them, what subjects truly get their interest, even if it's fleeting. I mean, because you're able to disseminate, to learn and disseminate information at warped speed often with ADHD, even if you're only interested in something for a few months, that's still a gift to that interest and the people who learned from you in that interest uh, than to not have been interested in it at all. So no, I don't believe it is a superpower, but I do believe there are aspects of the way everyone's brains works that are superpowers. I look at people who can sit down and get a shed ton of admin done and I see that as a superpower. But they're seeing me as a creative and, you know, doing all the things I do and they're seeing that as a superpower. So really... I'm going to come right back to the beginning of um, what I said, which is, well, sort of not the beginning, that philosophical tangent I went on midway through where I talked about how amazing it would be if we started to take this new knowledge, this new clarity of people finding certain things really hard and other people finding certain things really easy and starting to build effective networks where we get to harness all the goods and support each other in all the areas we need support. What does ADHD look like for me moving forward? Well, yes, I did try medication. I had the knowledge of my neurotransmitter profile from a couple of years ago, and and I get that urinary metabolite profiles are a snapshot in time and there would be a fair bit of variety, but what was interesting for me was all three, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin were on the low-ish scale. Not disastrously low, but they were low-ish, all three of them together. And uh, that would be why Ritalin was absolutely terrible for me. I knew on the first dose that it was like a dimming of my light uh, for me and it didn't necessarily even help me get more done because if you uh, if you are ignoring the fact that you are then – because Ritalin keeps the norepinephrine and dopamine circulating more, but then if I've got low serotonin as well, then that's not going to be super helpful. Um, and it is going to feel like we're dimming the the super good parts um, of that personality for me. That's how it felt. Uh, and I, when I had Jules Galloway on the show recently and when we talked about it on her show, LD ADHD, um, she um, said the same. I think that podcast is going live next week. Um from memory. So, um, dexamphetamine was much better, but what concerned me with that was that the first month I could take a quarter of it in the morning and at lunchtime and, uh, would just sit down and get work done. It was really like a little honeymoon fairy tale of, of, of taking this medication. I'd, I was like, do people, is this what people have been doing all along? It was really just quite an incredible moment of, of, of getting an insight into the doer's world. Um, and, uh, and then what happened though was all of a sudden it needed to be half and then three quarters and then a quarter and uh, then a, a whole and then, um, and then I could take two tablets and, and that would kind of, and then I was like, well, hold on. I've been taking this for two months, a couple of days a week. I didn't take it every day um, because I don't need to take it every day. If I'm going to give a talk in front of an audience, there's absolutely nothing that you need to do to hold, like to, to get me in front of that audience and, and show up and do it. That's zone of genius, right? Um, whereas if I had to get 
you know, business owner admin work done, then yeah, I needed, I needed some support. And, and so, um, and so I was worried given the research on the aspects of long-term amphetamine medication around bone health, around dopamine production, lazy dopamine, still being argued, um, but there was a vascular health. There were some aspects that really worried me as to, well, if I just have to keep increasing my dose, because I remember reading on a Reddit thread that most people are on like the 50, 60 milligrams a day <laughs> who are long-term users, um, and then sometimes it just stops working. I just thought, well, where does that end? You have side effects and then where does it end? So I didn't feel really comfortable with that. And this is just me. This is absolutely no judgment on medication. A lot of people said, um, well, obviously, what are you doing to manage it? Because you wouldn't be taking medication. I was like, well, I have an enormous amount of compassion for conventional medicine uh, users, especially when it's in a save the day mode and you're working on your long game still, um, or it's in acute mode. Um, where you just really need that medication right now and this is when conventional medication shines. Uh, it's probably the only aspect uh, of medicine that um, conventional medicine um, that um, medication shines, but uh, it's really, it can be really important for people and I definitely would never want someone to feel judged. I certainly wasn't judging myself and I don't want you to judge me because if you do, well, that's your thing, not mine <laughs> for a start, but you never know what people are going through and what's happening. And if that's really helpful for them and it helps them move on to the next stage, or if that's where they stay with that thing and they work on doing everything else in their lives in a low tox way, then so be it, right? Um, we just aren't for judging each other in this community and trying medication was my open-mindedness to seeing what it might offer me. I don't believe I will take it in the long term, um, and uh, but I'm seeking uh, answers for, uh, ways to support myself in, in, um, in focus and attention, because the reality is I have a business that I love and I want to focus on it. And sometimes the more menial aspects of just getting things done, especially since COVID and losing a couple of team members, um, through that financial difficulty of running a business in that time, um, are, uh, the reality is the buck stops with me and there's a lot more admin things I need to do right now. And hopefully that won't be the case always. And I can go back to fully being in zone of, zone of genius. Uh, it's certainly what I'm working towards. Uh, and until then, um, uh, maybe I will need to take a, a small dose of Dex. What I noticed was going off it for a couple of months and then just taking half a tablet every now and then very, very occasionally it did its do for a four hour, crank it up, get, get stuff done, um, type session every now and then. And that's kind of where I think I've landed. Um, but again, I'm just talking about me and it's up to you. So on other days, uh, or every day I take, uh, NAD, nicotinamide riboside, cause I really like the research on that for attention and focus. I like ornithinine, orthanine, um, oh, now I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but Google it and you'll find it. <laughs> uh, very interesting research. PQQ also, ubiquinol again shows up. Fish oil, very high, quite a high dose, um, led by my practitioner. Uh, I'm not going to share that dose. Talk to your practitioner. Um, uh, certain things around like anthogenol, pine bark extract, those sorts of things didn't really do a huge amount for me. 
Um, but my um, naturopath made me a herbal blend for focus and attention, and that has been really helpful. I really do notice a, a difference when I take that. Um, so again, you can talk to your naturopath about how herbs might be able to help. Um, but then, of course, there's there's a few other things. Um, I'm just trying to think in my supplement stack. Vitamin B, uh, B12 is huge for me, and B6 active form, which is P5P, magnesium, zinc, um, L-tyrosine can be good. Um, but I found the effects of it wore off really quickly. Like I took it for a week and I was like, wow, that's amazing. It's a precursor to dopamine. Um, but then it just stopped working. So I, I'm, I'm not really sure of the mechanism there. Um, Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist at Harvard, has done a few episodes on ADHD. Um, something I've, I've noticed um, uh, myself gravitating towards is definitely ensuring that movement piece is in there and definitely uh, working a little better on my sleep. Uh, I recognise now, and that's where self-awareness is helpful, that... Um, it can be really detrimental if I don't prioritise sleep uh, in terms of focus the next day. And, I mean, the science has told us that about every type of human needing good sleep to to do well. It's, it's like when your brain tidies up the house up there and we really want to give it the best chance of doing that. So that, my friends, I'm sure I must have spoken for a couple of hours now. Jeez. Um, if you're still here, hi, thanks. <laughs> if you did this in two parts, I'm not judging you. This was, this was, this feels like it might've been quite long. I'm going to have to go and look at how long I've been speaking, um, once I hang up, but thank you. And I hope that has given you some insight into my journey. Um, I hope some of the reflections have been useful, whether you do or you don't have ADHD, whether you do or you don't want to get diagnosed, if you think you might have it. Uh, and certainly how to support people with ADHD in your life, kids and adults around you. I really appreciate you tuning in uh, and I'll see you on next week's show. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.